Well, surprise, another episode of the Le Boogie podcast is now live. And this is a follow-up with Dave Hubbard, recorded just two days ago here in Sintra, Portugal. Uh, Louis Finnegan joins me on the mic for a while there to throw his two bobs worth in. But a really good chat with Dave just after his epic results here in the Sintra Pro. Hope you enjoy this podcast. It's a bit of a cracker. I think we'll just ease into this podcast episode. You were number one podcast episode. For the bugs, yeah, yeah, so yeah, cool. yeah. You were number one. So my face is still there when you yeah. can check out episodes. Yeah, you're the first. And when we were talking that time, <clears throat> you were in Budapest. Yeah. And you're not there anymore. I'm not there anymore still have residency but yeah not utilizing it no but you're actually more specifically well where in Sintra and we've just finished the Sintra Pro mm-hmm. and you did okay <laughs> super stoked on on how it all turned out and for my only world tour event of the year just radical yeah really really stoked on it how did you um <clears throat> You know, did you come here with such big intentions? Well, I definitely came here intentionally to win the DK, but also was quite focused on winning both. And yeah. So my, my intention was to come and win both. Right, so you were just like, I'm going to go there, I'm going to win. In, in one way or another, my thoughts were in that direction, we could say, yeah. The direction of the podium. Yeah. Okay, cool. Is that, like... That's a pretty big call to come from not competing like at all really for the year into your first competition of the year and then going for the podium. That's pretty bold. Well, we did have some regional events in oh, Hawaii. Yeah. Okay. And I do think that we have, you know, really good talent there and the field is always pretty challenging. And uh, the first event... I won the men's. I beat my brother and Jacob Romero and uh, Kavika Kamai in the final. Okay. And that was that was a really big, um, like, thing for me to start the year off with a men's win, and uh, made the podium in the DK. And then we had Sandy Beach just a few weeks ago, mm. which was kind of like a, a little warm up for mm. Sintra. Mm. <clears throat> Another really outstanding field, and I made um, the podium and the three divisions that I entered, stand-up mm. men's and DK. And so that was kind of another cool, uh, yeah, just kind of warm-up, I guess. But yeah, definitely, it's a big call coming into the first world stage event where yeah. there's definitely a lot more variables. There's definitely a lot larger of a field and, you know, also a lot more international talent. And, uh, yeah. Still, hey, but you still, got there got there and it was it was super exciting and um definitely kind of reignited some of my interest in the in the world stage yeah cool i mean you, obviously it declined 
worked for a couple of years really or a year or so like what's what how did it decline and how did it what because you know to reignite something implies that it's not alive or mm -hmm. on fire anymore so mm -hmm. what happened there for you so i think that there's been a couple ebbs and flows in my career in the competition aspect of it over the over the course of my career and it wasn't necessarily so much of like a quenching of the flame there was definitely a, a a slight decline just trending down in in interest but you know I got engaged and then it was more of a priority shift that brought me away from the tour the last two years so it wasn't necessarily that I wasn't into it it was just other priorities were clearly more important mm. and so I focused on those and was <clears throat> maybe not happy is the right word but I was comfortable to put those ahead of mm. competition on the world stage. Now that there's a little reignition, how, what do you do about that? <laughs> What's next? So I think it's looking forward to, well, first of all, there is a possibility of coming to Fronton. Mm -hmm. If my wife gets a travel permit. Yeah. And if that happens, that would be, you know, that would be the next step. But realistically, we're we're definitely looking towards Chile as, you know, if those events get confirmed, like at the very least, we're going to make like a solid, together we would make a solid effort in Chile cool. to be at all of the Chilean events. Cool, cool. Next year. Yeah. Nice. Back on tour. Dave Hubbard. Everyone get excited. I of am. course, starting at, you know, Pipe, you know, I don't really have to travel too far for that. And I would yeah. participate with that regardless. Exactly, yeah. Plus, that's looking like a decent, I think there's two days for the waiting for the competition this time around. Um, there's two days of competition inside of a pretty decent window, I think, this year. A bit better than last year's one. Yeah. Or for, for February next year, I should say. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that could even be some kind of Grand Slammy style event. One might yeah, hope. Something something pretty pretty rad. Mm. It'd be good to get it back to pipe, huh? Like in a significant way. Is it is it important that bodyboarding has its place there? Or have we kind of let it go and there's other places that bodyboarding can be? It's you know. It's it, it's it was the start as far as world championship events happening there. It was the definitely the proving ground and kind of the world stage, mm. and and still is to some degree. It has definitely drifted away from that where people don't need to make a concerted effort on the North Shore no. to be on the top and to be to garnish, um, you know content yeah at this point also mm. competition wise we've found other great venues all that being said it's there is still something about pipe that seems to draw a lot of people's interest mm. whether it's um, the organization itself whether it's competitors of course spectators it still seems like a natural fit for something big to happen there mm. and it's just about being creative to find out how and why and the logistics and just exactly what 
could that look like? Yeah. It is funny though because it has it isn't as important anymore for this content thing or the proving ground stuff like I I remember going back years ago and you know I was there for a number of years in a row to kind of you know play around out there and survive and not get beaten up as well in the process but like that was a it was an in, intense period and it seemed like everybody had to do it to be a part of what was going on in bodyboarding but today oh. you know there's I don't even think Tristan Roberts has been to Hawaii Oh, yeah. I don't think he's been there. Why? Yeah. Okay, good example. So that's Prime interesting, example. right? You know, like there's a guy at the near, you know, he's a, I think he's still a contender coming into the front on event, an outside chance. Um, never, never been to Hawaii. Wow. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. It's a big change. It's, it's a huge shift compared to, you know, where bodyboarding began. Hmm. But there's still a lot of talent coming out of there. Like, is there any impact? I don't think it seems like it, but do you think there's been any impact on the on the grassroots? Because I'm, I'm assuming that all of this kind of congregation of the world's best for a number of months on one beach oh, is yeah. kind of like has an impact on the local riders and how they aspire. But do you think there's been an impact there? I do. I, okay. I do think there's been an impact. I don't necessarily think it's kept the people who should be on the world stage off of it mm. but at the same time there was a lot of Hawaiians who made a demi career we mm. could say out of just being present mm. on the North Shore when all these international yeah, sure. cameras were around mm. and getting their magazine pictures or spots and videos based off of their performance where they would probably be surfing anyways. Yeah, exactly. And now, for example, you know, you kind of have to make a definitely a more focused effort. If you want to get footage, you probably have to line up your buddy to shoot you. Mm. And then you have to push your content yourself. So mm. I think there's <clears throat> the guys who are, you know, who are up there and deserve, well, clearly deserve to be there and who are, are there, that's already happening. And so mm. I, they haven't been affected as greatly as I would say, like the, the C grade guys who, you know, we just, we don't see maybe on the world, mm. the, the world's not looking at C grade Hawaiians right now. No. But they were when the cameras were coming for that little period of the season and they'd get some some shots and some waves and jump in the mag if they landed something cool and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I see what you mean. That's no, a big big shift. I mean, what does it say for the future of the of bodyboarding there? Because I had a good chat to your brother in Arika and it seems like the future's quite bright in many ways. Like yeah. the um the big Kiki Fest, the most recent one that happened, mm. it sounded mm. massive. Yeah. Like and young kids. Yeah. Bodyboarding. Mm -hmm. with their parents and like mm -hmm. multiple generations so yeah something around like 120 entrants or something like that to this huge yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. massive so like what so what's going on in hawaii then i think there's a lot of you know a lot of the elements that have always been there are there so mm. culturally you know we got beaches we got uh, wave riding craft and mm. so bodyboarding is you know definitely one of the main ones especially to start getting in the water on yeah it's been such a part of the culture for generations to just naturally trend towards 
going and jumping in the water, whether it's shore mm. break and jumping on your boogie or whether it's, you know, some super flat wave and jumping on a longboard, whatever it is, you know, bodyboarding is always has and will continue to be a big part of mm. just the what Hawaii is, especially for the local um, people growing up there and living there. Mm. And in that aspect, if the grassroots and the young kids have, you know, a vehicle to, to participate, that can kind of fuel their stoke and kind of, kind of at least push them for another couple years mm. in bodyboarding. And then, yeah, I think at the same time, one of the big differences is, you know, it's just become more and more clear to anybody who, you know, gets past those Grom years into their Pro-Am years to see what it takes to become a professional and make a living out of bodyboarding. Mm. And it usually means supplementing your career with another part-time job, yeah. like at the very least. Yeah. So, you know, there's the, the, the illusion of being a full-time professional bodyboarder has has mostly like faded away whereas there there was a total reality at one point that yeah like you could even be a c-grade rider and at least have probably the same support as the a-grade riders have today mm. big change yeah huge change not a terrible change in my opinion because i think it's kind of cool that people have jobs anyway you know like Mm -hmm. I, I, find, I find it weird that you would get paid to go bodyboarding. Like, you know, like, I, it's just a weird idea to me. Like, yeah. Like, it's not, it's not real. Like, that's, like, a pretty wacky thing. And, like, well, you know, like, it's good if you can get it, of course. Of course. What's but, less real is going bodyboarding and then playing around with social media and that being... Yeah, that's the career. That is, yeah, that can so you, be. You do mm. you you play on your phone, you play in the water, yeah. and that becomes a career. Mm. That's less real mm. even than just getting paid, going to be a sportsman. Mm. Yeah, an influencer <laughs> and whatnot. <laughs> Says the guy that has an Instagram account that's never been posted to on the main feed. Never. They have done a story though. I've done two. a few stories. Yeah, yeah you, I you should checked I, in. I should probably do a little more that's all right do what you do you're fine cheers speaking about next generation hawaiians you know you did mention as well <laughs> that you came here to win the drop knee and you didn't mm -hmm. and you were beaten by a young hawaiian that mm -hmm. next gen sammy moratino got his third straight drop knee world title mm -hmm. and he's a he's a sudden this year a completely out of left field contender for the world title totally. in prone Totally. And he deserves to be there. He's surfed his, yeah, heart out to get to yeah. that point. Yep. I mean, how did it feel to lose the other day? Of course, the initial feeling was, you know, not pleasant. <laughs> we could say that. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you know, he's, you know, he's somewhat a product of, you know, the, the versatile riding that I represent. I wouldn't say, like, he's a direct product of me, but, mm. you know, there was, you know, probably for the last maybe 10 years or so, not many people waving the versatile flag. No. And Sammy, Mac, Kavika, those guys are, are waving that flag very proudly and really picking up mm. on that versatility, and they all ride in all three stances. Mm. 
at a very high level. Mm. So on one side, you know, if I take myself completely out of it, it's pretty it's pretty epic to see exactly what you just described where somebody is winning the DK World title and they're in the running to win the men's. And I think that's that's something super exciting. I think that's amazing for the sport. Mm. I think that's that's um yeah, been a long awaited like kind of shift. And I think it's really healthy for the sport in general and I think spectators and yeah just all aspects of the sport are really kind of responding to that mm. and being becoming more open I think that's also gonna gonna help to inspire you know future generations mm. to to look more more seriously at the versatility of our craft mm. you took it away from yourself pretty easily there didn't you um, <laughs> let's bring it back <laughs> so the initial response to losing was not pleasant, but I mean, how does it make you feel about your, like, do you know where you went wrong? Like, do you reflect on like, how did you lose that final? So, cause you were like, you know, mm -hmm, I was mm -hmm. like, either one of them can win this final mm -hmm. and I was, didn't know, you know, like there was no clear advantage one way or the other. Like you both had been riding really well throughout the event it seemed inevitable that you two would meet in the final again. Mm -hmm. They may as well have just scrapped the rest of the event and just gone straight to the final, in my opinion. But <laughs> no. no offense to everyone else who competed. But so, what? How did you lose the heat? And I think I think the each of the finals has really come down to wave conditions. Yeah. I I would say that he has had the advantage in each of the finals. One due to his weight, he's yeah. he's lighter. Yeah. But he is he's more limber and he's he's more more adept to those conditions and making them look good, which is mm. which is a big part of of drop knee. In any conditions you wanna make make something kinda look spectacular and if, yeah. if you're a bit heavier and that's coming from a guy who's still probably one of the lighter. I was gonna say you can't be that much heavier <laughs> than him. <laughs> Um, he is a very small guy, though. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and he makes it look, you know, pretty, pretty rad. Yeah. And, I, and at the same time, you know, besides the conditions on the final day, I do think he was the the top performer in the drop knee division throughout the entire event. I think he had the highest scores most of the way through. Yeah. So yeah, consistency, really high performance, he he had it. So he was he was the top performer, even if we don't look at the final day. Mm -hmm. So where I went wrong, yeah, probably not in a lot of areas, and just, um, yeah, I would just like more opportunity. I would just like, personally, would would have loved more scoring opportunity on that day. Yeah. You know, had there Big, been like a few bigger waves. Yeah, like a set that I could have ridden, or or whatnot, or the opportunity for for more events to kind of factor in. So I think. There's a discussion happening now to look f look towards next year and open up the the drop knee division into more of a tour where more events are counting and mm. I don't know how they're going to do the points and everything. But then we could we could open it up to you know not just one event. thirty minutes one on one determining a title. Mm. We could look at of course that would be a big factor in it, but we could start looking at. A tour yeah that would dictate what could happen and so I think that's that's what I would like to see more of and I would be just more excited to be a, a, a part of that and not that that would 
completely change all the results, but would be, I think, great for everybody involved mm. to have more more opportunities like that. True. What about bringing reunifying the prone and drop knee divisions? Is that something that you mm. have a strong opinion on or, a, or an opinion at all on? Because we used to, bodyboarding used to just have it be a bit of a free-for-all. Yeah. And didn't seem to suck. It was actually when bodyboarding was probably its biggest. Mm. What about that? I had a, a conversation with Paul Roach probably in like 2009 that was, um, you know, big for me for, for a period of time. And in 2010, I was, you know, almost committed enough to, to try to drop me in every, every heat. And um, that was before there was... Um, you know, a blindsided rule that negated drop kneeing in the men's division, which mm. really came out of left field. And I don't know who participated in that discussion besides a couple officials. All right. And um, I've always been on the side of um, re reversing that. Um, the the only um, group of individuals that would be affected potentially negatively would be the officials because they would have to know how to judge drop knee and prone side by side it's something that you know officials did in the past and yeah. when bodyboarding first came up and um there was some some radical radical heats and in that discussion with paul roach um you know he he expressed the semi-final at imperial beach versus mike stewart as one of his competitive highlights of his career because Mike Stewart was on top of his game. I don't know the year, but um, Paul Roach beat Mike in, you know, probably not epic waves yeah, at Imperial yeah. Beach and, you know, made it to the final over, you know, the guy who was on top. And they were both doing their thing. And, um, you know, I think that kind of the display, like, I would love to see that heat, you know? Yeah, me too. Me too. To see what that looked like. And there's been times, um, like at Huntington Beach, I've seen in a little BIA contest, you know, Chris Juan Taloa standing up on his boogie board. And then, you know, one of the more talented um, prone riders in California at the time, Jeremy Wright, mm -hmm. you know, going for a battle against each other. And there was just, there really wasn't any way anyone laying down could have competed with. Chris that day uh -huh. he was doing so much more with with the wave and they were maybe knee high yeah and to to prone on them was an absolute struggle yeah and it was ne not necessarily like a, a gorgeous sight but you know Chris made standing up on those waves look very graceful and mm. very exciting so I think there's you know the the aspect of having the men's uh, as an open division or the women's as a open division and then having specialized divisions where there's a DK-only division or a stand-up-only mm. division, those are still, I think, very logical and very uh, exciting possibilities for the sport. I do think there is a, a chance of it moving in that direction at the pipeline event. Mm. And I think, you know, this year, 2019's pipeline event was reflective of that where there was not even divisions separating the sexes mm. and ayaka suzuki i believe made a made an amazing performance and the way that she won the women's 
uh, division, we'll say, or the women's trophy at that event was by being the highest placing female yeah. rider in the open division. It wasn't yeah. even men's open. It was just the open. Hmm. And um, so I think we're, we're, we're moving towards opening up those possibilities. And I think the pressure just really then lands on the officials to hmm. accurately distinguish between who's riding and how they're riding and the waves and the opportunity and mm. but that's really like what bodyboarding is so in my in my opinion let's go let's do it yeah and also i think that um there's that idea that like i think you said it without saying you you said something that i'm thinking and it is that ride the wave the best way the wave wants to be ridden mm. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you know like if if you're in that one foot slop and going stoogie is the best way to ride that one foot slop well then if you don't know how to ride that way you're probably going to lose mm -hmm. you know and and then you know like if there's like a a good wave for drop knee well then and you're riding prone well then you may lose to the guy that knows how to drop knee well or the woman who knows how to drop knee well so there's i guess it's just about riding the way the wave wants you to ride best you know and and that's like a big part of why you know there's a bunch of guys out there that ride in a versatile manner because mm. they don't want to be put into a box and they want to let the wave dictate what yeah. what they can do and mm. and i think that's you know super interesting because the other wave riding sports they're boxed in they yeah. have a stance that's what they need to do on their craft yeah. whereas we have the opportunity to ride in a few different ways mm. i mean a lot of different ways but there's kind of three main ways mm. and um they're all super functional yeah given con certain condition conditions sets. yeah mm. yeah because i remember one year in australia kingy it was like a regional competition i think it was the northern region titles or something like that and so it covered like foster up to the border yeah um and he rode drop knee the whole event he didn't i don't think he proned one wave and he ended up winning because it was when you were allowed to do yeah, yeah. whatever you wanted essentially except for i don't think he, yeah i guess he could have stood up but yeah you could drop knee or prone and yeah he won the whole thing just drop knee and everyone else was prone and everyone thought he was tripping and then he ended up winning. It was crazy. Yeah. It was crazy. And it was um, really cool to watch. And he was banging some, you know, some crazy floaters and big, you know, gouging reverses. And, yeah, it added, it added something to it. And I guess, um, I guess for me, because I left when this shift happened. I wasn't around when this whole decision was made not to have drop knee mm -hmm. and prone. But, you know, I remember the Tahiti comp of 2003 when Kainoa ended up yeah. coming second and he was you know the big thing lingering for everyone was is he gonna drop me is he gonna drop me it was this real big hype around is he gonna do it or not you know and it was cool do you want to just come and sit with us you do you want to join the podcast yeah sure. yeah <laughs> louis you can ask some questions as well where's your lunch though this is mine oh okay I'll, I'll go get, yours. Oh. <laughs> get the special service you're gonna have to come and sit on that side with dave all right i will Wow, it looks like a big sausage, but it's a like sweet a potato. It does, it's like doesn't a snag, it? yeah. <laughs> Louis just made me lunch after he gave me a yoga session. So cool. To tie that to, well, how about we bring that 
we'll bring Louis into this discussion as well as another competitor. Yeah, to get his perspective. That could be kind of cool. Yeah. But um, what I also want to come back to is um, I want to talk a bit about what we just did inside there as well, like with the yoga and stuff and how that fits in with your life. Because you're a fit dude. Thanks, buddy. Oh, gee, bro. What do you think about um, about the Thanks, whole drop knee prone thing, like whether we should have it in one division or not? I'm not against either, eh? That's very diplomatic. Um, yeah, I don't know. What's your view, Dub? Have you already said it? Yeah. I'm but just, elaborate just again. The audience won't hate it. <laughs> yeah, I think... Um, I think it'd be good. Yeah, because we can do different things on our craft that, yeah. you know, it would be great to showcase that yeah. competitively as well as in any other form and not just kind of be... Uh, mandated to assume a specific stance in, yeah, a, I agree. in a specific division. I agree. Stoogie as well? Yeah, anything open. I mean, it used to be that way on the Bud Tour when, you know, bodyboarding really kind of started to take off in its competitive life cycle. And that was arguably still, like, maybe one of the highlights of competitive bodyboarding was this Bud Tour that happened. What was the Bud Tour? In California, it was, and it was... Budweiser you're talking about? Yeah. Beer. Pro surfing. Yeah. Pro bodyboarding events up and down California, and I think they had a few other regionally where maybe in, maybe one or two in Hawaii, maybe one or two on the East Coast. Yeah, right. It was a tour that happened for a, a, a few years pretty strongly. Yeah, right. Televised. Yeah, right. On... ESPN. On national American television mm -hmm. as well, I believe. And um, what era was this? 90s. Kind of early er 90s? Early mid 90s. And so the Bud Tour, it just had the bodyboarding. It was just, you know, there's bodyboarding and there's surf. You know, there wasn't like 10 divisions. Mm. And, mm. and so all the bodyboarders did the bodyboarding. And there was guys like Kisasaki and Chris Wan and Paul Roach mm. and Mike Stewart and the Koi Classic guys. As, you know, ton of others, and then there was the surfing, and then you had your Gary Alkertons and your even maybe Young Slaters, and yeah, right. Tom Currents. So they all were at events together. That's and cool. The bodyboarders were doing whatever they wanted on the waves. So it was a it was a it was definitely a cool moment. Hmm. Do you think it can get back to that? Uh, as far as allowing, opening up the division, I think it, it, I think it could. I think it would, it would take some time to bring both shortboarding and bodyboarding together again yeah. in a mm. professional context, but I do think that's on the cards, yeah. not like out of the question. It would take a lot more initiative to, mm. to, to go that far instead of just changing a rule in the rule book. But, yeah. <laughs> That'd be cool, though. Super cool, super cool stuff. Yeah, Do I think it's tries. um. Thank you. I think it's interesting. I feel like I know when I interviewed Kainoa, he brought up this problem about uh -huh. separating the prone and drop knee, and he wasn't overly stoked about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's one way of saying what he said. <laughs> yeah, he probably had strong opinions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And he thought it was a terrible, terrible yeah. moment for the sport. Like, yeah. are you are you with him in that? Like, do you feel like it's set back to the sport in some ways? Yeah, it 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 has. Yeah, almost almost a hundred percent, without a doubt. It has it has brought setbacks in, and I don't think there was any benefit whatsoever of that rule being placed. So I don't think there was any benefits, and there has been drawbacks. Only drawbacks. Yep. Would, would one drawback be, just off the top of my head, I'm feeling like one drawback might have been like the types of locations we were trying to position ourselves in. You know, we might have been open to more point breaks and more, you know... Venues. Venues, yeah. Whereas instead, yeah. bodyboarding kind of went hardcore on the, the slabs, slabs and the, and the and you know, the hectic yeah. stuff. Yep. Do you think it might have changed that? Because, you know... Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. We're, yeah. Whereas, you know... You know, just looking back at the the Hoff Pro, mm. you know, at San Lu and Reunion Island, that was an amazing event for prone riding, but kind of a wave like that wouldn't really be looked at in nowadays as no. a venue for prone no, riding, no. even though that event was amazing for spectators. It looks amazing too, yeah. And I, I really miss complete riding mm-hmm. whether it's prone drop near anything complete riding what do you mean just having more maneuvers on a wave mm-hmm. and just <laughs> yeah. linking up more than take off bottom turn hit the lip which mm. not to take anything away from that i think that's that was a very progressive move when that was allowed into our criteria to have one powerful maneuver because yeah of course one of the best things you could do on a bodyboard is probably launch a huge air reverse yeah and if you're doing a huge air reverse you're probably not doing rolls before or after mm. and spins to link up all these maneuvers you probably have to focus all your speed on that one section so you know i'm definitely not taking away from that one maneuver because i think it's spectacular and it is a part of what bodyboarding brings mm. to the table as something that's awesome mm. at the same time yeah to answer your question venues have definitely been overlooked and leaned towards in favor of offering that one boost mm. it's interesting because we um i think antivagasta was the first and only wave i've experienced on the tour where it seemed to have that opportunity yeah to link for linking moves yep. but even then it didn't seem like it mattered to the judges yeah. if you did or not not yeah, which was quite were. frustrating to see. Like, there was a good opportunity there. Even Punta, Punta Dos in um, Iquique mm-hmm. was a similar one, you know. There's a chance to, like, link a few moves through that wave. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I feel like even still it wasn't really being rewarded. It was almost like there's a setting in the judging. We've been <laughs> stuck in that mold for so long yeah. that that is what gets an excellent score. Exactly, Is yeah. that one big maneuver. But... You know, that's not what the criteria dictates. The criteria dictates that that is an option and a, a, mm. a, an avenue to achieve a perfect score, but it's not the only way to do so. Because mm. you're a judge as well. I've taken the, the, the judging course and probably would pronounce myself at level two or three, even mm. though my qualifications probably are only at level one. Mm. I would too. Do you feel like it's like you've done the you've done the education? Yeah. Is it hitting all the marks, in your opinion? It's a, it was a very good course. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I was so thankful to um, Craig to finally um, 
offer that, and I think it was just a... I think Alex took it with me, and this was in Tahiti a few years ago, but I had, for six or seven years, had just been hoping that they would do a course and offer it to people in English because there was a couple times I missed, but it was in Portanol. Mm-hmm. Um, like in South America where they did it in Portuguese and Spanish, but oh, it right. necessarily like a English-based course. Uh-huh, okay. It had used to happen used to happen annually at the pipe event they right used to, they used to offer it and um so anyways it's a great course mm. and i think what's missing in the course is just um practice practice you know? and i think there could be you know just some some video component to it mm-hmm. where we were as a class we we watch a wave well of course first you'd have to watch the conditions so you know you watch a few empty waves break mm. And okay, these are the conditions on this day. And then you watch somebody ride a wave, mm. and then you put a score, and then you kind of get assessed by your instructor on like why, you know, the average score was X, and you would then look at what you had given it, and then mm. you could go over some heat scenarios and kind of move forward, do your interference calls. Yeah, that's pretty know, important. Based off of you know some video examples, and I, so I think you know. Some video examples would be one of the one of the ways to improve that course. Okay. The course, the course in general, I, I felt was good, and I think what comes after the course is on-site practice, being a judge, and getting your hours. So I think that's where you're really going to get in any field. You're going to get the majority of your education once you get yeah kind of brought into how to relate to this like field or whatever you're doing, and then you practice. Hmm. Hmm. So there's none of that at the moment. Um, no, there there is, but it's. I guess you gotta kind of hunt it out or know when it's being offered, and um, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's no like video review in the classes that I know of, but yeah, it would just. I think because the class itself was great for me as a competitor. Mm-hmm. It was also great for me as somebody who participates and helps out with you know small events like you know children's events and grom events, you know. Hmm. And it was, you know, a great way for me to, to even just know, you know, how to give motivation or instruction to, to younger guys at contests, you know, where, you know, I had a moment with James, the young South African before the junior final, just because he was nearby. And I just mm. gave him some, some pointers based off of not necessarily writing, but based off of, okay, this is maybe how to approach it so that you can get higher scores. Mm-hmm. Mentoring. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that that I mean that's a big part of the I mean a huge part of competition is this this construct that there's a group of individuals judging mm. the competition and that's just the way it's set up right now. Yeah. And so in insofar as that's the construct then we can still Yeah, we can mm. still take advantage, improve on it, um, learn about it, hmm. you know, make our, make our input. I don't necessarily think it has to be exclusively like what the riders want. Hmm. I think we need to consider the spectators as well hmm. and also consider the difficulties that a judge is going to have in assessing correct scores. So I think it's really easy to get one-sided on that. And as hmm. a competitor, I've been there where I felt, you know, like competitors are always right, judges always or maybe not always, but usually wrong. And then I've been on now kind of 
able to see all perspectives, especially you know on the webcast when you, you're reading comments and you're and you're seeing the public's response to mm. scores as well. And so, but also too on the technical side where I have some judging experience, and then, then mm. I kind of look and see well what what would I have done if I was behind the the notepad. <clears throat> in that case and th and you need to look at all sides if you want to improve on the situation you can't just say oh they just need to judge better mm -hmm. <laughs> or something like that you know i think there's a definite there's something lacking by the way i'm always really deeply respectful of the judges and and what they do that's a complete lie <laughs> i give them hell um and uh, <laughs> there's a mutual respect there i think i think um, but one of the things that was interesting about the Australian comp, I'm not sure if you've watched any of the heats online in Kiama, but Mitch Rawlins, um, he did quite well, but he did it how Mitch does it, yeah. you know? And it was, so it was very much about being on the face of the wave. It was very much about like jamming some powerful reverses off the end section, Beautiful. not necessarily air, but like really powerful stuff. And yeah. you, you, we were talking about this already, Louis, like, you know, it was quite interesting to see how high the scores came in for some of Mitch's waves. Mm -hmm. It was really refreshing. Yeah. Like, in some ways I was shocked mm -hmm. that he, he could get a 6.5 for a cutback reverse kind of floater, um, you know, off the end section. But at the same time, I was like, oh, nice. That's like, that's cool that that actually got that score for once. Like, I feel like they're missing something there with those types of maneuvers generally. Like, they don't, it's almost like they don't know how to how to assess the degree of difficulty to to do a really powerful reverse off the lip yeah. and then comparing that to a big roll or a big flip the flip and the roll are always winning against that powerful reverse off mm -hmm. the lip I don't know do you see that as well do you see that there's this kind of just this little bit lacking there like they they seem to just get a bit excited when someone's upside down yeah well I think going back to how anyone gets better at anything mm. they probably don't have much practice and they probably don't have too much judging experience and so when that kind of writing comes back mm. which is like you said super refreshing it's probably maybe something they don't have as much experience judging so then it becomes because it's so rare yeah and then it becomes so unfamiliar that they have a difficult time assigning a score to it mm. whereas if we saw that more regularly, whether it's on different venues or riders knew that that was a possibility to get higher scores, mm. they would have more practice and then we could see see the criteria being fulfilled because it's in the criteria, you know, the most critical or the most radical maneuver in the most critical part of the wave. So, you know, like, for example, you know, the the almost out of the bowl carving reverse that Skip mm. kind of has you know, a bit iconic for it, mm, right? mm. and other riders have done that maneuver, but it's a very low number of riders who have successfully and powerfully executed that maneuver. Mm. I'd say that that's much more radical, and it's in a, it's mo in a more critical part of the wave mm. to complete the maneuver and ride out with speed than doing a lip move. Mm. Whereas right now, and gener generally speaking, it's correct, but the lip is where it gets most critical. Yeah, but. There's definitely ways to get more radical than than a rollo. Yeah, and, or a flip. And also, yeah, degree of difficulty is another mm. way to, to kind of contextualize it. Mm. 
But it's a funny thing because, you know, you bringing you into this, Louis, like, remember that that's a pretty interesting quote. I'm going to quote you now on it. But, like, you you said something about in Antofagasta, you were like, you never feel completely great about the way you have to surf in some of these comps. For sure. You yeah. don't feel like you're surfing the way you would otherwise. You're, uh -huh. you're, you're doing sure, stuff. Yeah. So what's that all about? Like, that kind of sends a signal to me that, like, there's something clearly wrong here. Yeah, I feel like I would sort of lock myself in to always try and lip moves in a heat, mm. especially backflips. Yeah. Like every, I think the majority of people are thinking, like, I'm going to go out there and try land some big backflips. Mm. It's just, like, gets a bit repetitive and monotonous after a while. Definitely. But it sort of seems to be what the judges do like to see. Because bringing that into what you just said, Dave, like... <clears throat> There's a chicken and egg problem almost there because yeah. you're saying maybe the judges don't get to see this so often so then when it happens they don't really know how to score it and then if more guys did it then the judges would get more familiar and maybe they'd adjust their scores but then it's like well are more guys going to do it and lose heats so the judges Brilliant. can get used to it and then start to score them properly it's like how do yeah. we overcome that right and i don't know is it not it seems pretty straightforward to me to be honest I'm no level one judge, but a really sick reverse out of the bowl at pipeline or anywhere for that matter. Yeah. Even if it's not a full air out of the bowl, but like no, a yeah, really just, critical yeah, carving power, reverse with power. Throughout. Harder than anything else I can think of doing. Yeah. And yeah. so therefore, like how it's so obvious to me, mm -hmm. but it doesn't score. It simply doesn't. We mm -hmm. know this. But there's been examples of Pierre doing some stuff out of Eureka where he, you know, gets three and, three and a half or whatever the score was for a yeah, yeah, pretty yeah, crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the one I'm talking yep. about, right? Like, yep. and so, yeah, it's interesting, like, how to break that, that flip fest that bodyboarding has kind of become. Yeah. Because I think it's super important. Like, I'm, I find super it important. hard to watch myself. Like, I can't watch it. Super important. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's another, how we even got here was that, okay, does allowing people to drop knee and stand up mm. open that up i mm. think that would even open up prone riders to yeah approach the wave a little differently mm. too and of course we're looking at venues as mm. there's so many factors that need to be a part of that movement mm. and at the same time you know if the wave is mediocre and it's going like pretty fast a backflip is probably the best possible thing you could do but if you have an open face if you have more yeah. of a dynamic wave mm. to ride then it's it's probably not unless it's linked with other maneuvers and yeah. so yeah there's a few different things it's not just a quick fix here mm. but it's a it's a great discussion mm. like to get the listener viewers views on this as well feel free to make some comments etc Coming back, maybe we're coming good to a wrap-up point, but, like, we just finished a really epic yoga session with Louis, the, our instructor in the middle here. <laughs> um, I was trying to concentrate on my own moves, but I was noticing you, because you were next to me. Mm -hmm. You've got a fair bit of flexibility. Like, you're fit. You've got pretty much zero fat on your body. Like, are you the fittest you've ever been right now? I might be pretty close. Yeah, maybe. I think at least in a dynamic context where more of my muscle groups are closest to the fittest they've ever been where okay. maybe there was a time where i had bigger arms oh. or maybe there was a time where one muscle was stronger but probably 
to unite all of my muscle groups in my body, maybe it's now. Yeah. What's the secret? How how have you gotten here? Uh, well, yoga's been a part of my <clears throat> preparation for this event. Yeah. And it's been a part of, um, yeah, how I've approached my health and vitality mm -hmm. over the last like several months mm -hmm. specifically. Um, I've always been really keen on stretching and postural mm. exercises. Um, but yeah, putting that into... My posture just adjusted on that moment in <laughs> the like, conversation. Mm. I'm like, mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, continue. <laughs> continue. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's something super important. I think you could look at, you know, you could probably isolate, you know, a handful of variables in anybody's health that would make the biggest difference, you mm. know? If they drank more water, mm. if they had better posture, mm. if they had a better connection with their breath, you know, I think there's maybe, and their diet, you know, you could probably isolate between, you know, a handful and a dozen mm. things that this is going to go way past some little niche fad that says, oh, you have to do X at this mm. time of day and that's going to do something, you know, mm. you're looking at hundredths of a percentile for your overall health, whereas mm. you look at maybe a handful and they're maybe 10% a pop, you know, mm. and you can get a, a whole body increase in your health. And so over the last several years and, you know, really focusing on that in more recent time, you know, I'm trying to look at all those things mm. and bring those all into mm. how I approach my fitness preparation for competitions and, um, yeah, so that's been a, that's been a part of it. Practicing yoga has been a mm. part of that. Um, my diet has been a part of that, and yeah, just continuing to learn about mm. health and wellness and trying to apply that. What's the what's the number one thing you could throw out to the audience to say? One of those big ten percenters. You mentioned water seems like a big one, like drinking yeah. enough water. You're never far from having your your bottle. Mm -hmm. You know, you've always got your bottle with you has a swig. Louis's got his bottle, mine's inside. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, is that one really key one? Like how much water you drink in a day? Do you feel like that's a critical factor of your health? Yeah, I do think so. And yeah. I think so not only for my current health, but longevity and just mm. cellular health and on so many different levels. Mm. And I think it's not only just the quantity of what I drink, but also the timing of when I drink it. Okay. And you know, not taking a liter right after a meal. Yeah, sure. Or making sure I get a liter or more right away in the morning. Mm. And so, yeah, timing that and just my... So you're getting a liter on, a, on rising? At least. Okay, that's interesting. That might be something interesting for the audience. So yeah, like, like you're, you're cracking a liter, you're waking up and you're... Yeah, so like probably in my day it's between like five... Say maybe an average is five liters. Really? Whereas like 1.5 in the morning and Crazy. then, you know, at least another liter before my next meal. Maybe, yeah. You know, and then staggering it like that and in between there's more liters happening. And wow. If there's a big break between meals, then I can put more liters in. Wow. And I, I mean, maybe it's over the top, but, you know, the body is smart enough to be able to Ditch flush it. out yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. is was unnecessary. Yeah. And I think there's some similar stuff with other nutrients we take in. Salt gets a bad rap. I mm. think our body's smart enough to ditch the salt if mm. we're taking in too much. Mm. 
And if salt's not coming from processed foods, mm. I think that it's amazing, and our body can it's let, like it, what it, let it go let if we did have too much. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, looking at the 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 foods I eat is another one to have it being really veggie dominant. Are you a vegetarian? I'm like a pescatarian now. Yeah. And I try to have you know between fifty and seventy percent of each meal be based on veggies yep of course if they're fr uh, fresh and if they're locally grown mm. and of course if they could be organic then all those things make them a higher quality mm. i've heard somebody say that they're not like a vegetarian or they're not a vegan or this or that but they're a qualitarian a qualitarian and they're like that's good on they're they're good with meat they're good with butter yeah. they're good with all these different the food the best. components and they're not necessarily eliminating mm. dairy or gluten or whatever but they're just looking for quality mm. in the food that they eat mm. so that's you know that's another thing to kind of look at is that makes sense. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, a, like I said, there's about a handful that have been important to me, and maybe they're different for other people. Mm. How does all that sound, Guru? Sounds really good. For sure. <laughs> I passed. Nah, you just gotta... Yeah, but well, I mean, you, you, you're focused on this as well a lot, so it's interesting sure. to get your perspective. Just like, I definitely agree with the holistic approach, mm -hmm. rather than, like you said, thinking of finding a fad, some secret pill you can take to mm -hmm. shed 10 kilos in 10 weeks or whatever. It's yeah. like... You just got to look at your lifestyle and mm. yeah it's not it's really not that hard no you can simplify it drink lots of water eat eat good food and just move move well and mm. train your mind somehow whether that's yoga or meditation or mm -hmm. just taking a break to sit still so i think mental health is a big one these days not, huge. Just, not just physical health huge huge yeah. yeah you don't hit the booze either do you no, I haven't drank for maybe eight years or more. Eight years. Yeah. That's got to help with the body yeah. fat percentages. Yeah, and I had a big issue before with weed and was kind yeah. of dependent on it. And I've okay. been like five years off of weed also. Okay. So, yeah, like substance-free. Substance-free. And that's really good for me. You know, yeah. I can really only speak about what works for me. Mm. And that's been such a huge, huge thing in my life. Mm. Usually when people get off the weed, they put on weight though, don't they? Yeah. Look at this guy. Huh? Not this guy. Not this guy. <laughs> this guy's superhuman. <laughs> he right? is. He's superhuman. <laughs> well, that's cool. I mean, so taking in all that water seems like a big factor. Uh, you're doing a bunch of yoga. Um, you were mentioning Bikram was the kind of main yoga type you've been doing recently. Mm -hmm. As I've kind of been getting into it, like I said, it's been a few months where I've been practicing, but I'd like to, you know, broaden mm. my perspective and my horizons in my practice and just yeah. kind of bring different approaches in and move, move it around and not just get stuck in one hmm. phase or yeah, one, yeah, yeah. one style cool and then is there anything else that you're doing to stay fit like other than other than these things we've mentioned so far are there any kind of day-to-day -day tips you can maybe offer out to the audience um, yeah day-to-day -day, i mean getting enough rest is important mm. I think, uh, like Louis kind of touched on, like um, stillness and having mental clarity and giving your mind a break. That's mm. like really important. So not only sleep, but you know, finding a way to to calm the mind. Mm. I think that's like that would be something that whether it's yeah a little bit of meditation or even reading mm. or just some sort of relaxing that kind of calms the mind and kind of quiets the 
the chatter mm. is is helpful and important for me that's um yeah reading the bible and prayer mm. because i'm a christian so connecting with the higher power that i feel is in jesus christ and mm. so that's a part of my day that kind mm. of touches on that and mm. there can be meditation there too there's sure. What's really interesting, and I kind of want to explore it more, but there's so many aesthetic practices, even in the Christian religion, that like touch on meditation and touch on these kind of, they, they would kind of go maybe hand in hand with like some Eastern mm-hmm. mysticism, mm-hmm. but they're in the Christian context. So mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of different stuff, and we've had that yeah. conversation before where you yeah. listen to Stoic yeah, theology. Yeah, 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 so yeah. different ways to kind of mm. find some clarity and peace did the weed help like did you have an active a really hyperactive mind though in are you kind of that way programmed or you always been chilled i think that was that was a draw to me that i it it did numb out yeah that's what i was thinking part of the mind and made it a little easier to focus on something else exactly yeah hone in or at least heighten some sensations that drew me into thinking about one thing whereas yeah. instead of having yeah. other things happen but i think you know whether it's uh mitigating pain or whether it's there's so many different things where we rely on like a crutch mm. whereas our mind or our body or you know we're we've got amazing machinery that can probably deal with almost everything that we have going on we mm. don't probably need to go external to find solutions Mm. and i think that's where a lot of problems arise in our society with addiction or codependency and other things where they're arising from our reliance on something outside of ourselves Mm. um like in the material Mm. world more specifically sure sure so the spiritual practice is that is that way of kind of getting the mind in check yeah and i think it, it's okay if it's a reliance on an external deity or like in my case it's it's connecting with god you know mm. obviously that's external to me but there is some theology that would say that god's living in me mm. also but you know if i'm reaching outside of me to you know to take a pill because i'm have pain yeah. that's not addressing the issue and that's not solving the problem mm. and if i'm smoking so i don't feel sad anymore mm. i'm still probably going to feel sad later yeah and so that's kind of where I see, like, and could go on for hours about mm. societal issues and Western medicine and how mm. these approaches aren't necessarily beneficial for anybody. There we go. So I guess the short, maybe the short <laughs> way to wrap that, because <laughs> we could have gone on for hours, but, like, the, um, the short way to say it is just, like, I like the idea that, there's, that all the solutions are inside us. That's an interesting way to say it. Mm-hmm. There ain't there ain't really that much of a need to look outside to to to, to fix stuff. Like usually, it's either in our heads or in our bodies, and we mm-hmm. can have a lot of agency over those two things. And I think if we're looking outside, it's to give us perspective on what's inside. Mm. So whether Hence it's God, yeah, mm. yeah. It ultimately, you know, whether it's a mirror in a yoga studio, mm. so you can see your posture. Yeah. Whether it's therapy or speaking with a good mate mm. about a problem and then then giving you some insight and you saying mm. like actually i do feel that way but mm. i didn't notice mm. or whether it's reflecting on you know for me it's the bible and prayer and then i get a 
different perspective that, oh, I can see mm. a little more clearly what's inside because I've used a lens to look back in mm. and then I can move forward instead mm. of just having an outside view or strictly an inside view without any mm. input. Cool. No, that works. That works. <laughs> Final question to wrap it up. We just came off the yoga session. You've been practicing a lot. Like, how did the teacher go? He's, he's about to launch a website, and we've got to like let people know oh, if it's worth tuning into. Went insane. Yeah, I was super stoked. And um, yeah, there's there's certain things that I I like from instruction and that just benefit me. So it's not necessarily like right or wrong, mm. but I felt that Louis' instruction was easy to follow, mm. and it was. Uh, yeah, done in a way where it wasn't um, impeding my practice, you know, mm. whereas sometimes it's not always conducive and it doesn't always lead lead you. Sometimes it's pushing or mm. sometimes there's this tug of war. And so it was it was a great practice. So thank Cheers, you. Bella. Here's your 20 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon that's a perfect way to finish the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for jumping in, Louis. Yeah, sorry to bombard you. No, guys. no, 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 no it's great. It, I loved it. And thank you for sitting down again. Congratulations on Sintra. Thank you. And let's try and get Drop Knee and Prone into the one race. Yeah. That's a fight I can get behind. How about you? <laughs> yeah? <laughs> so there it was, Dave Hubbard in a rather candid conversation. Covered a lot of uh, distance there. Thanks to Louis Finnegan for jumping in. Hope you enjoyed it. It was um, really cool to catch up with Dave and really great to see him back in fine form and to think that he may well be having a good crack at the tour next year. That should excite everyone. Thanks again for listening. The book, 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 the